This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk... Basic Med hits a big milestone. And the King Air 360 line achieves FAA-type certification. Also, who wants to win an airplane? I don't know about an airplane, but I wanted to go to Redbird, but it's all online this year. Finally, it's good news, bad news, we'll call it, on the Boeing Jobs and Honeywell BizJet Activity Forecast. All right, Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. David, our show this week, incredible pilot, great writer, really, really dynamic person in aviation, Catherine Cavaniero. She flies an airplane. A lot of people remember, but uh, maybe under a different owner. Yeah, uh, the name of the airplane. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give away some of her interview real quick. But, but everyone needs to stay tuned for Catherine because she is a cool person, Ian. As you mentioned, someone who has a dynamic handle on aviation, and I think she's a spin specialist. That's what I refer to her as. But we went flying in Wilbur. That's the the brother slash sister airplane to Orville, and it's a Cessna 152. She's gonna tell us all about its history. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so stick around for that. But first, let's start with a little bit of a celebration, Basic Med. Now, this is the alternative pathway to medical certification that we've talked about, and it's been a little while since we talked about it, but Basic Med has hit 60,000 people. That's It's just incredible. That brings 60,000 aviators back to the sky, Ian, and it makes it a lot easier for a lot of folks to retain or, or you know, basically get back in the air or retain their medical certification. And it's pretty darn easy to do. Yeah. So now, of course, let's start with the traditional medical, something we'll call it. And we just talked about this because you just went for this, right? That's right. I got my third class medical maybe about two, three weeks ago. Yeah. And I think I think I was bragging that uh, that I even was able to read all the fine print yeah. <laughs> during the vision <laughs> test with no, re- no restrictions or anything like that. But you know what, Ian? Honestly, that third class medical does stress a lot of people out. Let's face it. Mm-hmm, yeah. That is that's a freak out to a lot of people. And especially if you have other concerns. Yep. Yep. I think the thing is the medical, although the standards are slightly different between first, second and third class, a lot of pilots believe, and I think they're right, that the standard, you know, think about it. The airplanes we're flying, are they're light, they're lighter than cars, they have less total energy. You know, for the safety of a community standpoint, you're probably a bigger risk on, you know, driving a car. You know, Basic Med acknowledges that a little a bit and said, yeah, there can be alternative pathways to certification where instead of having to go to an AME, you go and you have a conversation with your doctor, someone who knows you really well, and he or she goes through a checklist and decides, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you can meet the basic criteria. And you take an online course and, you you know, by medical education, that's a good thing for anybody to do. And you're good to go. And that's essentially what it is. It limits what you can fly and, you know, type of operation, but it makes a lot of sense. 
It does, and we're celebrating this, Ian, because it was signed into law. I, and I remember the day, July 15, 2016, we put out a special e-pilot. Uh, it was a quite a big deal, and, and it basically went into play May 1st, 2017. So, mm-hmm. Ian, we're only looking at a little bit over three years, yep. about three and a half years of basic med, and that 60,000 people have taken advantage of it. So my math didn't great, but that's about 20,000 people per year. Yeah, yeah. It is very impressive. On average, on average. Yeah, that's right. If it's something you're interested in, maybe you're on a special issuance for third class and you just want to stop with that and the expense, most people, there are caveats, most people are able to go through basic med. AOPA's got a website, and I'm told there are still really continual questions about this through the Pilot Information Center. So go on that website aopa.org slash advocacy slash pilots slash medical slash basic med. Go on that or Google AOPA basic med and you'll find really nice, easy explanation on how it works, what you have to do to be compliant, and basically who's eligible. Now, if you have a basic med, I'm not sure you're going to be eligible to fly a King Air 360 or a 360 ER yeah. in because it's a little I bit heavier so. than the no. weight range <laughs> that, that you can fly under basic med. But, uh, but that could lead us to our next story. Yes, the 360. Everybody's heard of the 350. This is the 360, the new iteration, and the 360R, and they were just certified. Yeah, we talked about this before on Hangar Talk. And so uh, the 360 and the 360ER. Like you said, they earned the FAA type certification. Deliveries will begin shortly. These uh, aircraft have new cockpit features like auto throttles and a digital pressurization system. And basically, cabin altitudes can run a little bit lower from previous King Air models and maintain about a 5,960 feet cabin altitude at a cruising altitude of 27,000 feet. Yeah, you know, I think the key there is the auto throttles. That is really what brought it to the, you know, a different league. You're talking about really an old design, the King Air, you know, the fuselage, pretty old design. So to bring that into modern times, you know, with auto throttles, these are made by Innovative Solutions and Support, which, you know, is like the most generic company name ever. But uh, you do might know as ISNS, and they do a lot of stuff for commercial aviation. So, yeah, really cool to see that sort of technology coming down into general aviation. And, you know, I, I think... 350, 360, those are big special performance, you know, contractors. So, yeah, I, I think that's going to be a winner for for them and the crews. So I think the pilots are going to love the auto throttles, as you highlighted. And as I mentioned, you know, the, the cabin altitude, that might be something more for your passengers, which I do think is a little bit significant because those airplanes, you know, can typically – typically cruise with with a good amount of folks in the cabin. And uh, I've actually been on an older King Air model um, during a, a Operation Care mission into Africa, and I was impressed with the performance of even that King Air model. And they're well-known for their performance on basically, well, let's call them unimproved strips, yep. uh, if you will, and, and yeah, and, the, and oftentimes in third world countries. But now, look, we got to talk about the price, Ian, because <laughs> uh, it's still it's still up there. Yes, the base price is seven point nine million dollars, but now you can get your choice of six interiors, including buttercream or king ranch. Oh, nice, nice. And the ER jumps up to eight point seven five million. <laughs> Buttercream and you know they they sound like sound like dressings salad dressings, you know flavors. <laughs> yeah, obviously you can have a jet for that kind of money, but you're not going to be able to carry that many people or you know go off on improved surfaces like you mentioned. Right. So yeah, they're up there, but you know for the people who need that sort of capability, it's they don't have that many choices. Like a very cool airplane. I'm sure uh, we'll see it in the magazine soon. One that's just been in the magazine that a lot of people are talking about is the sweepstakes. Another cool airplane, the Vans Aircraft RV-10. That's a four-place single-engine airplane that has been reconditioned from spinner to tail. It has awesome avionics in it. Ian, I got a chance to fly the aircraft a couple of times during some photo shoots, and it's not so much different than a Cirrus, and it, it, it trounced the Cirrus SR-22T in a couple of categories, and it's just a smooth-running airplane. And I think members are going to love it. Now, they have several different ways to enter and win. You and I were talking about that just before the show. Yeah. So that's why we're talking about it now, because the sweepstakes does close on November 16th. So if you're listening to the show prior to November 16th, you have to be 
an AOPA member or enter before that day, before midnight on November 16th. Now, you mentioned if you're a member, you're automatically entered. If you get automatic renewal, you know, where you put a card on file and it's charged, you don't have to get renewal notices or even think about it, you get five extra entries for that. So if you're an RV10 fan and you got to have it, then definitely get on automatic renewal. As, as you mentioned, you could join, renew, or use an alternate membership form or use a direct mail entry. These are parts of the fine print that you and I actually read. Yeah. So we could advise folks. And the, and the key, as you mentioned, was before 11.59 p.m. on November 16th, and that is coming up pretty soon. Yeah. So a lot of people always ask, so, well, I live here or I have this certificate. You know, how do I enter? So. It will say it again. If you're a member, you're automatically entered. Don't worry about that. If you join by November 16th, you'll automatically get an entry. And and this is pretty cool, I think. It's part of the AOPA sweepstakes. You have to be, on that date, so by the 16th, a certificated student, recreational, sport, private, commercial, or ATP in the U.S. by the FAA. I say that because you can be Canadian, live in Canada, assuming you don't live in Quebec. I'll come back to that in a second. If you live in Canada, not in Quebec, you can be you, you can win the sweepstakes. However, you have to have the rule states. You have to have the U.S. FAA certificates. Well, I, I need to find out a little bit more about Quebec, but also let's remind our our Hangar Talk listeners, our award winning Hangar Talk listeners, <laughs> uh, that um, there are ninety nine other prizes. Ian, yeah, that's true. That is true. All kinds of other cool stuff. You know, not like getting struck by lightning or winning the lottery or something like that. More uh, more options, more more chance. You got me curious about Quebec. What's the deal here? The deal is, and don't quote me on this. It's been a, l- a little while since I've done this, since you know the Archer that I did, boy, 13 years ago. I knew this intimately. No one's got to listen, Ian. Just our hangar talk listeners. <laughs> so Quebec has very unique sweepstakes laws, and and I think AOPA over the years has tried and looked into this, and and try and be a Quebec, and ensure that it's legal, but. It's just, you know, for whatever reason, the laws in Quebec just, you know, preclude us from being able to offer in Quebec. So if you're, but if you're in the rest of Canada or the U.S., D.C., Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, you are eligible. Well, that's good. Get your entries in now. And don't forget, November 16th, that's your deadline. Yeah, you got it. So Redbird Migration, you know, an annual event. You and I have been to it many times. This is a great conference. A lot of fun. People come together. You know, there's Redbird people. They know how to put on a party. Kind of like the new flight training conference, but everybody comes in from around the country, and it's a customer meeting, but flight schools and universities and customers and government and other people come in, and you know you come together for a couple of days, and but now with COVID, you know they had to do a bit of an audible, and um, so they're digital, and you're on it right now, David. It is going on right now, Ian. As we're recording this now, as folks listen to Hangar Talk, it will already have been presented. But here's the main takeaway that I found earlier today, and I want our listeners to listen up closely because this is going to also relate to a, the next story that we talk about uh, soon. The uh, GA leaders are remaining bullish on the training environment, and also several of the flight training professionals that are attending the Redbird migration, which basically recharges people. It recharges those educators that, that teach folks how to fly and, and how to get a, the advanced ratings and certificates. But several of the flight training professionals have mentioned that business is very strong in the U.S. It's very strong in the training environment. And to me, Ian, this was very, very good news. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you're right. And we'll talk about this, that in some more detail soon. But so, you know, let's go through some some of the stuff that, that happens at Migration. You've been watching it, you know. It's pretty neat. They've got this very cool platform. It looks a little bit like TweepDeck if you're, you know, 20 years or you you know, all the people have enrolled on one side and you can network with them and then you can, you know, watch the events, the, you know, the live events and the taped one on the left side. So, you know, one of those was Mark Baker and Elizabeth Tennyson from AOPA and they talked some about some of the AOPA issues. Yeah, the You Can Fly initiatives. We talked a lot about the high school initiatives that are that are so important to the next generation. And, you know, folks like, well, myself and you, we've, we've both got but kids in uh, in school right now, and in that environment, some of the teachers were a little concerned because they might have some training tools at their disposal that are basically hands-on tools 
which is what that AOPA You Can Fly curriculum specializes in, but they're not able to completely utilize them because of the COVID pandemic restrictions to, to social gatherings, to being in school, to being, you know, to having these labs in person. But you're right, it's a very unique platform that they've got going on. I tapped into a couple of the um, live broadcasts. There are some pre-recorded broadcasts as well, a couple of panel discussions with women in aviation, helicopter, Helicopter Association International. I know you know about that because you're uh, basically you're a helicopter pilot yourself. Yeah. And uh, Gamma, we talked about the Gamma numbers, General Aviation Manufacturing Association numbers. And uh, Jack Pelton from EAA joined uh, Mark Baker as well. So we had quite a few people talking about uh, GA, and it was pretty strong overall. In fact, Mark Baker has lately said there are more 172 Cessnas in the air at any one time lately than there are Boeing 737s. Yeah, I love that. And, he, and he's in a that a couple of times. And so it does go to show you that there's a, a huge interest, in, at least in the U.S. Now, Ian, I want to tell you that one, I, I tapped into a, a coffee break scenario, and one of the instructors from Europe was, was singing a different tune. You know, in Europe, you know, aviation is pretty tight. It's much tighter than it is here. There's From country to country, there are a lot of regulations, and it was actually a, a very stifling environment in Europe as opposed to the U.S., the U.S. has a great appetite for flight training, and we are still able to do that, even through COVID, but they're not so lucky in Europe. Hmm. That is interesting. So migration, very cool event. They've done a lot of work to, you know, bring it virtually. So good for them. And, you know, hopefully next year we'll actually get to see it in person. That would be great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Moving on. So we want to finish up with the forecast. This is something that we've, you know, We've been anticipating this, greatly anticipating, I would say. This is the Boeing forecast. We'll start with that. This is the pilot, maintainers, you know, cabin crew, aviation work for, for workforce sort of forecast. I would say, you know, maybe news isn't quite as bad as we expected. And, and that's probably how I'd uh, characterize this. I agree with you, and I, I thought it was going to be devastating, but it, but it is not as devastating as I would have thought. Now, overall, let's be honest, the, the forecast for pilots and technicians is down about 71,000 between the two uh, between the two jobs, mm. and this is a 20-year forecast, and that's because of, of a temporary oversupply of qualified personnel, which you can, if anyone who's paying attention to the news, you know, they would know that there are a lot of furloughs right now. There are a lot of retirements even still, but there are a vast amount of shortages even in aviation as we speak. So the new outlook calls for 763,000 pilots versus 804,000 called for in 2019. Okay. Reduction there. And 739,000 maintenance technicians worldwide compared to 769,000. So that's about a 30,000 drop there. And also, it's a little bit of difference in cabin crew personnel, too. But the bigger deal, I think, is that all the folks we talked to, and including some of the people at Redbird, have mentioned that you should just, if you're a career pilot, you're interested in aviation, stay the course. We hear that over and over, and it appears to be so. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's one thing that they've brought up is that the report, important to say, is that aviation has and, and will continue to be cyclical. So, yeah, there will be ups, there will be downs. You know, we people who have been around know this and, and accept it. But, you know, but they say, and, and they make the point, and I think this is important, the structural demand of aviation, the core of the business, is not going anywhere. I mean, this is, you know, people aren't going to start taking the bus. It will come back. The base reality has not changed. And, and that's, I think, accurate. I agree. And uh, now the other thing is that um, the report says that it generally takes about three years for commercial air travel to return. Uh, but it also takes about the same amount of time to get your training. You know, if you're just starting, if you're just starting out and you want to be a career aviator, it's uh, two to three years. And then you're basically earning your you're getting all your knowledge and you're going to earn, you know, earn some of this the hard way through through hours and logging time and things like that. So we're all going to come out of it at about the same time. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, maybe the one thing you could say about that is that pilotless or optional, optionally piloted, um, you know, that will impact it. But uh, although, otherwise, I think, you know, they're right about that. And, and overall, I think it's, you know, good news. Overall, you know, probably looking at a couple year dip and then it'll come back. I read the story and I was surprised that Honeywell said that 80% of the flight departments and other operators that they polled said that the people's 
buy, the company's buying plans have not been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And the five-year purchase plans for new business, just as new, not used, are largely unchanged from a year ago. Yeah, so, you know, to piggyback on that, um, Honeywell has issued the 10-year forecast. Now, this is for global business aviation. They reach out to operators, flight departments, and, and ask them, what are you going to buy? Are you going to buy more jets? Are you going to sell? You know, are you going to move categories? And they're reporting about a 4% drop over the next 10 years, which I'm going to be honest, I, I think that's a bit optimistic on their part. But they say demand is, you know, pretty strong. You know, one one good point here is charter and you hear charters you know eh, maybe you know strong but it's kind of localized and i i think you know some places are very strong but some not so much and you know personal charters up but business flying seem just seems to be in the tank and if you talk to charter operators they they seem to agree with that so i I think maybe a little optimistic but overall good you know operators at least think they're still planning on buying they're not going to cancel orders so overall i'd say yeah good news it is good news Well, speaking of good news, we can move on to some more good news with our next guest, right? Yeah, Catherine Cavaniero. So you, you she does spins, you know, and and she's also a PhD, so we'll call her the spin doctor. Uh, She doesn't call herself that, but we will. I like, see, that's a whole, she's got the whole package. Really cool backstory. You've been fine with her, I know, and nothing but good things to say. Welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast, Catherine Cavanera, and you're talking to me from Sewanee, Tennessee, and that is a home of Ace Aerobatics School. And I refer to you as a as a spin doctor, but really you had a mentor who was your spin doctor. But introduce yourself and give us a lowdown. Sure. My name is Catherine Cavanero, and let's see, my full-time job is as a professor of mathematics here at Sewanee, the University of the South. My fun job is teaching people how to get out of trouble, or better yet, stay out of trouble to begin with, and that's what I do at Ace Aerobatics School. So I teach basic aerobatics, and it's it really is an emergency maneuver course in disguise. So we have a lot of fun with it, but pilots walk away, I think, feeling more confident about their everyday flying. And I also teach spins, whether that's an isolated spin course or if it is part of aerobatics. But you alluded to my mentor. My mentor was the uh, famous Bill Kirshner, who was an aviation author and aerobatic instructor. And I taught aerobatics with him out of the Swanee Airport for the last few years of his life. And unfortunately, in early 2007, he passed away and people kept calling me. So uh, here I am 13 and a half years later, still teaching aerobatics and I love it. And Catherine, I'm going to let our podcast listeners know here on Hangar Talk that I have been up with you <laughs> in in your airplane and we have done spins. And honestly, it was one of the coolest things I had ever done on assignment for AOPA. And I must thank you publicly again for that. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, you know, I am in awe that uh, not only have you spun, but you've spun with a camera up to your eye. And that <laughs> is really tough. So my yeah. hat's off to you, David. Well, good deal, Catherine. All right. Well, we're, I'm glad that we're complimenting each other right <laughs> off the bat. And, uh, and I hope folks uh, are going to enjoy our little Hangar Talk podcast today. Listen, you talked a little, about, a little bit about William uh, Kirshner, Bill Kirshner, and one of the aircraft, well, the aircraft that you use is a brother slash sister aircraft to one that Bill had. Tell us a little bit about the Cessna 152 Aerobat that you're using right now and get listeners up to speed on on the significance of that airplane. Sure thing. Yeah. So originally, let's see, Bill years ago started an aerobatic school in Sewanee in the 1970s, and he used actually a Beechcraft Musketeer that was acrobatic. He ended up selling that, and in the early 80s, he bought a Cessna 152 Aerobat, a 1979, and he named that, by the way, Two Loops Lautrec, which I always thought was kind of a funny name. 
And then, uh, of course, I met him when I learned to fly out of the Suwannee Airport in 1999. And I became an instructor a year or two later. And that was about the time when I think he was, I think he could, he really appreciated some help teaching. I think he was slowing down a little bit. And uh, he was enthusiastic about my enthusiasm about aviation in general, and in particular, aerobatics. So he asked me to start teaching with him in 2003. And at that time, we were teaching out of his 79 aerobat. And in 2006, I looked on the internet and I saw what looked exactly like Tulips Lautrec for sale. And I jumped at it. And it turns out that my airplane is five serial numbers earlier. So mine is A1520812, and his was A1520817. And they rolled off the line within two weeks from each other at uh, Cessna, and they were flown by the same test pilots. It was kind of fun to connect our logs and, and see that history. And uh, I was reading a, a biography of the Wright brothers at the time. It's called The Bishop's Boys. And I was so impressed by the accomplishments of both Wilbur and Orville. And I decided that I would name my plane uh, Wilbur. So I had looked underneath and verified that, yes, he was a boy. So I ended up naming him Wilbur. And I walked, <laughs> I walked, I like into, <laughs> I walked into the Swanee Airport and I said, Bill, I've named my plane. And I told him that it was uh, Wilbur. And without missing a beat, he just said, all right, I'll rename mine Orville. And he went down. It, it was really cute. He went down to a local print shop and got some vinyl lettering uh, with Orville, Orville and Wilbur on it. And we put those on our airplanes. So for a while, we ran the aerobatic school with both aerobats, with uh, Wilbur on mine and Orville on the other. And actually, funny story, they were so similar that one day I went out to fly my airplane and I realized I had pre-flighted his by mistake. Uh, that I can was, imagine. I think, that was and they're beautiful airplanes. <laughs> they are just gorgeous little 150Ts. Thank you. Thank you. And I, actually, Wilbur has even had some upgrades since you've seen him. So he's even, he's a showpiece now. He's absolutely beautiful. Well, speaking of showpieces now, now Bill's airplane is a showpiece. It is indeed a showpiece. It is at the Udvar-Hazy Museum uh, as part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And when I last saw it, it was perfectly juxtaposed next to the Concorde. So it was sort of the Alpha and the Omega. And of course, I think the Alpha is the, the 152 and the Omega bet. is the, sure. <laughs> the Concorde. But I just thought that was an interesting juxtaposition, you know, opposite ends of the speed spectrum. So yes, you can see his at the museum. Excellent story. Now listen, before we get into some of the uh, details of spin training, which is so important for a lot of people, what is the importance of having a mentor like Bill? Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny. Through my life, I've just stumbled into things and I stumbled into that. And looking back on it, it's so important so I'll, just a quick story, I'll tell you, I learned to fly in 1999 and I went out to the airport. It was right after I had earned tenure and I just had my first son. So the same month, May of 99, I, I had those two things happen and I did what everybody else would do. I walked right out to the airport. I signed up for flying lessons. And there was this man there who seemed like kind of an airport bum, and uh, he, but he was so funny. He would he would tell us all of these great stories. And at the end of him regaling us with these great stories, he handed me a copy of his book. And this is before I started to learn to fly. And I looked at it when I got home and it said, you know, basic aerobatic manual. And I flipped through it and, and it shows these cockpit views of the aircraft in, in all of these weird attitudes. And I thought to myself, what kind of a nutcase does that in an airplane? Uh, but it didn't deter me from taking flying lessons. And of course, across across my lessons at the airport, I realized that, okay, this guy is actually kind of famous and he knows what he's talking about. And he is just a wonderful mentor with me as a student pilot. He took an interest in me because of my math background. So as I said, I'm a math professor. 
And he was very interested in that because his own take on aviation was really kind of technical as well. So he appreciates the technical side of things. But uh, he couldn't fly with me because he didn't have a medical. uh, So he could only fly with certificated pilots uh, with medicals. So it wasn't until I got my private certificate. And by that time, I was well aware who Bill Kirshner was. And my first flight after earning my uh, certificate was his aerobatic course. He, like I said, was very interested in me because of my math background. So he took me over to the University of Tennessee Space Institute and introduced me to the folks there. And I later did some work with them. I took grad classes in aeronautical engineering there. Let's see, I did a bit of test flying for them and I was a spin demonstration pilot for them. And really that all came from Bill. So he would also ask me questions like, you know, I don't understand why stick force per G is this in a pull up, but it's this in a turn. So I'd run off and I'd get some aerodynamics book and and figure it out, and I'd write it up, and I'd hand it to him. And so we had a lot of these sort of technical conversations. And of course, he asked me to start teaching with him at a certain point. So looking back on it, wow. I mean, that what, what a tribute to his mentorship. That's a great, that's a great introduction to, oh to aviation for you with a mentor like that. Now he, now folks who don't know of Bill Kirshner, he's written, I think at least six books yes. and it's like the student pilot's flight manual, the instrument flight manual, you know, and so on and so forth. They're available on a ASA. And these are books that, that people use to this day, like, you know, thousands and thousands of pilots have read these books. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, he was a gem for sure. Now, you mentioned a couple of things about mathematics. I know you're you have a PhD in mathematics, so I'm going to call you a mathematician. And <laughs> yep. you also do a lot of work for us at AOPA. We're very thankful for that. You've had some workshops uh, at some of our fly-ins, and you have a regular column in the AOPA Pilot Magazine. And a lot of the times that it is pretty much a delve into math or or certain skills that you kind of explain and break down into little bit bits and pieces that some of us could, you know, understand a little bit better. One of the most recent is from the September issue, the issue I like to call the photo issue, and it's about the chandelle. So that's a commercial pilot maneuver. And I really appreciate you breaking it down because I'm a commercial student. So oh, good. Uh, yeah. So th- thanks for that. And we appreciate <laughs> it. The other thing I was going to let people know is that they could jump around and do a little quick search on YouTube or go to your aceaerobaticschool.com site, look up articles and see a couple of cool videos. I want to ask you about them, Catherine. Tell us about, tell us about the wake turbulence video. Okay. So uh, it's interesting. You know, when I was a student pilot, I read that the FAA says that an aircraft starts creating vortices as soon as it takes off. And there's an advisory circular that says exactly that as well. I think it's 90-23 golf. And uh, I thought to myself, that just doesn't, doesn't make sense because as soon as you have airflow across the wing and there's some sort of an angle of attack, that wing has to be producing lift. And it may not be enough lift to get off the ground, but it's lift nevertheless. And if you have lift, then that comes from a differential in pressure, which means you must have vortices. And that always nagged at me. So a number of years ago, I was curious enough to go ahead and put strings and cones at the ends of my uh, wingtips on Wilbur. And I filmed a video that shows me taking off from the Sewanee Airport And it shows two things. First of all, it does show that the vortices start where the airplane is still on the ground. So, and of course, the the more lift that's created, the the stronger that those vortices are. So if you have a 747 taxiing or, you know, on its takeoff roll, it's definitely producing some pretty good vortices. The second thing that that video showed is the effects of flaps. And often at those AOPA fly-ins, I might ask people, well, are are the vortices worst when the generating aircraft is clean or dirty? And 
you know, generally I have about 50% say one and 50% say the other. And I think that that's because they've never been given a good reason for that. So uh, another feature of that video is I extended the flaps for my takeoff. I saw that. Yeah, I noticed that, but yeah. I thought that was because you're kind of at a little bit of a high altitude airport. No, uh, normally actually I take off from that airport with no flaps or okay. extended. So what I did is I gave 10 degrees of flaps, which is consistent with a short field takeoff. And I had extra cones and strings on the flaps because whenever you have a discontinuity in your plan form as flaps provide, you get an extra vortex there. So basically what you'll see in the video is on the takeoff roll, you'll see four vortices at the ends of the wingtips and at the ends of the flaps. And when the after takeoff, I retract the flaps. And what happens is the inboard vortices, the vortices attached to the flaps basically go away and the vortices on the wingtips become stronger. So that's why a clean airplane it generates worse vortices instead of four weaker vortices, you have two stronger vortices. So, and they're more outboard. So they're more yep. at the, at the edge of the aircraft wing. Well, now that makes a lot of sense. And that's going to help a lot of us pilots out because you know, a lot of the times I'll, if I'm clear to take off uh, behind a, a jet, I'll wait, you know, a minute, I'll kind of time a minute before I take yep. off, but maybe Catherine, that's not quite long enough, if, especially if they're building up vortices while they're on the roll, you know, cause we're, I think where a lot of us are taught that once the air, airplane takes off, that's where we want to kind of eyeball where it takes off and, and adjust our takeoff to that. Right. And I just think that's sort of a losing proposition. And I, I just feel like it's better to wait a couple of minutes. And if the winds are particularly light and calm, then you may be waiting more like three minutes. And by the way, I have to give a quick shout out to Tom Haynes. So that article that I wrote for Pilot Magazine appeared about a year and a half ago. I think it was December of 2018. And a couple of months later in Tom's column, he wrote about an experience that he had that ended up amplifying my message. He was flying, I think, his Bonanza in and was operating very close behind another aircraft. And he ended up, despite the fact that, you know, he, he thought about those rules that the FAA offers. And I have to say, I thought it was kind of funny because he said on short final, he thought about my article. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, I like hey, that. That, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, he got pretty well rocked around in some wake turbulence. So he basically, two or three months later, came out and shared that experience. I'm really grateful to him for that because it, he just served to amplify the message that I was uh, trying to send and that, you know, pilots need to be very careful and maybe trying to imagine where these vortices are is not the best way to go. I like that kind of research. And I, I really thought it was, was cool the way that you taped the strings on there and a yarn or whatever was across the, the top of the wing as well. So that was some good research. Now, look, there's one more video I want to ask you about. Yep. And I'll probably mispronounce it, but it's a, a fugoid. So oh, sure. tell us. Tell us what that is for folks who might have not heard of the term and what you are trying to demonstrate with that particular experiment. Okay, so I think you're talking about the spiral video and yes. just just a bit about oscillations real quick. So a an aircraft if it gets disturbed it basically, it goes it starts to oscillate in a longitudinal sense, in a pitch sense. And that oscillation is made up of two fundamental basic oscillations, one of which is called the fugoid oscillation, which is also called a long period oscillation. And you can excite that in your own aircraft by trimming your aircraft out and then go ahead and raise the nose. Say I'm trimmed out in my Bonanza at, let's just say 140 knots. And I raise the nose until I see about 110 knots and then basically let go of the controls. And you can keep the wings level with rudder pedals, but what'll happen is the nose will then pitch down. The airspeed will typically go past 140. Let's just say it goes to 160 or so. And it's trimmed for a certain angle of attack. So what'll happen is the nose will pitch up 
and it'll go past 140 or underneath 140 again, but it's probably not going to go as low as 110. It's probably going to pitch back down. And what will happen with most general aviation aircraft is that they will, they'll subside as time goes on. The FAA does not require that, but most general aviation aircraft do. They have a- they'll, they'll kind of settle out a little bit. Yep. And that's called a stable fugoid oscillation. And it is characterized by a constant angle of attack and changing airspeed. So yeah. So what do we learn by this? So for the fugoid, what I was demonstrating in that video is, interestingly, if you get into a, an inadvertent spiral, like the graveyard spiral, where maybe like like me, I'm really good at this. If I am flying IFR and I have my approach plates down in my lap and I look down at my approach plates and I look back up, if I don't have the autopilot on, I am often in a little bit of a bank. It's really easy to not notice that you're getting into a bank. And if you let that go too far, then what happens is the airplane will stay at the same angle of attack but the airspeed and the load factors will start to increase in that spiral. And we often think of recovering from spirals as, you know, power back, level the wings, and then get away from that ground. And that typically means pulling because the nose is low. But in, what's interesting and what I was trying to point out in that video is I was flying with Jack, my son, who was helping me, and we let the airplane go into a spiral. And once it got picked up enough airspeed and, and the nose was pretty low, what, what we did is we just leveled or we neutralized the ailerons and then just released the controls to see what would happen. And what happens is you excite a fugoid oscillation that way. So the nose will pitch way up or it can pitch way up. So in recovering from a spiral, if you have a defined horizon, it's not a big deal, right? You power back, you level the wings, and then you take the nose back to the horizon, whatever that means in terms of control pressures. If, if it's daytime or nighttime right. where you could see the horizon. Right. But picture yourself in a cloud. And what happens is as you level the wings, the airplane is going to pitch up anyway. And if you help it along, you might exacerbate that oscillation. So if, if anything, you're exacerbating the fugoid oscillation instead of helping it settle down, which, by the way, is often what happens with pilot-induced oscillations. Sometimes the pilot is not the best help when it comes to an aircraft that needs to settle back down. Often the, the pilot is, uh, is not much help. I, uh, I understand that because my, uh, my ACE instructor, Dave Hirschman has throttled me before <laughs> for pilot induced oscillations, you know, right. Basically, you know, in the landing pattern, you know, yep. or, you know on short final, I was like, Tulis, quit that, you know, just <laughs> let the airplane settle out. And he, and that's a good point, which is, you know, the pilot is fighting the natural tendency of the, of the airplane to get a little cushion, cushion of air underneath it. Um, just, just before you touch down. And so then you're, you know, sort of lifting off into the air again, and you're starting this thing over and over as sort of a porpoising event without touching down. And that could lead to trouble even just a few feet above the ground. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Yep. All right. Well, now that's a good segue to tell us a little bit about, about one of the things that you do a lot you know, for a lot of people, and that is the spin training, you know, a little bit of light aerobatics and spin training, just basically so people can understand a little bit more about how to get out of a spin, what a spin looks like, how to get out of it. Now, I know you actually love them and, <laughs> and like to count up uh, as many as you can, you know, and uh, just have some fun with it. But that does teach us some key things. Now, I'm going to uh, let our audience know that I took some spin training and during my you know private pilot training and it wasn't required, but I still to this day do not understand why it is not a requirement. I agree with you there, except that I think there's so much misinformation about spins out there. And I think there, unfortunately, there are not enough flight instructors who know enough about spins to teach them properly. I do believe, I think every pilot should seek out 
good spin training. Uh, and to me, it serves several purposes. First of all, and I just shared this a couple of days ago or a few days ago with a student. Uh, he was he was impressed with the speed with which the aerobat spins. And I asked him, I said, how would you like your first spin to have been inadvertent? And I think that made a big impact on him. You know, it's quite a sight picture. And the last thing people need to do is to freeze when they see such an alarming fright, uh, sight picture. So I think spin training, one thing it does is it gets the pilot accustomed to seeing the aircraft in unusual attitudes, and it it limits that sort of duh factor, if you will. Okay, it, so you can recognize it. You, you know what's going on now. Exactly. And you, I think you're better able to think through the solution instead of sort of being shocked by uh, what just happened. Another thing that it does is, I'm really big, by the way, on ground school. So uh, that's part of the reason I make those videos is so that ground school will be interesting and exciting. And I like ground school to be a conversation. I like people to walk away thinking, wow, I have a much better grasp on the aerodynamics of of spins. So when I do spins with somebody, again, it, it follows a, a healthy dose of ground instruction. And then, you know, again, I, I find value in going into fully developed spins. But one of the most important things that we do is I make sure that at the onset of a spin, the student knows exactly what to do. For instance, I usually let them warm up with some coordinated stalls, with the, which is hopefully what they've been doing at the, uh, up to that point. And then I make sure that they are uncoordinated. We do slipping stalls and skidding stalls. And a, in a slipping stall, your high wing is going to stall first. In a skidding stall, your low wing is going to stall first. So what I like to do is dispel any mystery about which wing is going to drop. But that being said, it doesn't matter which wing drops, the recovery is going to be the same. I think too many people make too much about using the rudder to counteract that. I am, don't get me wrong, I am all for using the rudder to try to stay coordinated. But the fact is, uh, as I pointed out in an article for Pilot Magazine about a year ago, there's only one way to be perfectly coordinated. There are infinitely many ways to slip, infinitely many ways to skid, but coordination is a razor thin line between those two. So truthfully, we're almost never perfectly coordinated in our flying. So the fact is, if you're going to stall, you probably are going to have a wing that's going to drop and you should certainly use the rudder to your advantage. However, pushing is the answer. And what I show every one of my students is all you have to do, I make sure that they are on their way into a spin. In other words, the wing has, has started to drop with authority. And I show them that if you just push, then it's all over. You get your roll stability back and the airplane uh, does not go into a spin. And to show the limit of the effectiveness of the rudder, we go through something called the coordinated coordination exercise. So I have them hold the airplane in a stall and I have them try to keep the wings level using the, the rudder pedals alone. And it's tough. It is really tough. Because you need the rudder pedals, the aileron, you really need that plus power as well. I mean, it seems like there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on there. And I think too many people or too many instructors concentrate on the rudder when it's the elevator that is going to save their lives. So what I show them is, and hopefully this is not the case, but you could be turning final on that stereotypical base to turn skidding stall, which is insidious because your lower wing stalls first. You could be on your way there, but if you just push, you're not going to lose much altitude at all. You know, you might lose, I don't know, 50 feet most. If you just push, then you won't go into that spin. You can clean the plane up, take it around for a better approach and landing. Uh, but I like to emphasize it's pushing. That is your answer. That is cool. That's a huge takeaway, Catherine. That's going to be well worth folks listening to this Hangar Talk podcast just for that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I so, agree. So, so pushing is the key. And uh, of course, you, 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 you know, obviously you said 
still use rudder, be coordinated, but don't forget to push. And that's something that when, you know, if you have a, if you have, you know, lose an engine on takeoff or something like that, that is not a normal, you know, reaction. Most people are going to pull instead of push. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I, um, you know, and we're all, I don't think any of us is immune to it. I was taking off from my home airport years ago. And long story short, I had a turbocharger failure on takeoff. And I'll tell you, those trees looked bigger than I like them to look on my takeoff. And it was too late to bring the throttle back. And I ended up, every fiber of my being wanted to pull back on that yoke. You know, when you're seeing a tree that's too close, you really want to pull back. And I made myself, I put my hands on the front of the yoke and I made myself hit VX airspeed and, you know, ended up going over the trees. But I know, I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of our time, you know, when you want to go up, you pull, right? I mean, we're so used to that, but there are certain times when that does not work. So we just all have to remember if you're having less than anticipated takeoff performance because of a failure, or if you just, in an extreme, you lose your engine, pushing is the answer. It's going gonna, it's gonna to let you come to the ground under control versus out of control. And maintain so, control. That's yep. the key is maintain control. As so many, as so many have said, including Bob Hoover, you know, control the aircraft all the way through the crash. Amen. Yep. Well, look, let's, uh, speaking of, uh, of some other pilot tricks here, let's, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, congratulations on earning your designated pilot examiner uh, ability to help uh, people like me who are, you know, <laughs> going to have a check ride one of these days soon. Tell me a little bit, of, if you don't mind, and please don't use any names or anything like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, I like, I like to call like David Letterman back in the day had stupid pet tricks. Is there something that really bugs you like a stupid pilot trick as a DPE that you see that, that us pilots could avoid to make your job easier? Oh gosh. Let's see. Um, are there, are there so many, it's hard to pick one. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, you know what I'm seeing a lot that, that has me sort of mystified is uh, folks coming to a check ride, having not received a standard weather briefing. In fact, I've seen people who they say they've never had a standard weather briefing, and I kind of wonder how they're going on their cross countries and availing themselves with a comprehensive package of information. So that is certainly one. The standard weather briefing, and in a nutshell, standard weather briefing is going to be the basic weather briefing of basically the bigger picture. Is what you're looking at, right? Correct. So it not only includes weather, but it includes TFRs, NODAMs, uh-huh. and, and such. And you know, the thing is, you don't have to call one eight hundred WX brief. Although I I call them every once in a while. I'm I'm sort of a fan of those folks. I think they're really helpful. But you can get one via ForeFlight. You can get one on the web. the The nice thing about getting one of the digital products is that, of course, you can have it emailed to you so you have it all printed out yeah for flight or garmin pilot and also just a quick plug for aapa members it's free to them iflightplanner.com there's an actual free free version for aapa members oh yeah that's a great resource so so you have seen pilots without a, a without a briefing come and show up for a check ride correct and and some have admitted to me they have never gotten a, a standard briefing in their lives. One of those was, by the way, an IFR student. So I just wonder, how on earth are you going on those IFR cross countries if you're not availing yourself of that kind of information? Oh my goodness, I'm already yeah. scared now because now you know, <laughs> yeah. there are other pilots in the sky that are doing this. Oh my goodness! I right, will this without you know without without incriminating folks. What's another one? I mean, that's a good one. What's another one? Does it, you know, I taught classes for a little while, certainly not as, as long as you have or at the level you're at, but I used to like to call it stump the instructor. So on one thing that I'm seeing on IFR check rides is folks aren't paying attention to say departure procedures or obstacle departure procedures. They are, uh, you know, they're fixated on approach plates 
but they're not, they're forgetting what it's like to, you know, you have to actually leave an airport <laughs> to, to uh-huh. go on your, to go on your flight. And what I've done, even though I'm giving exams largely in Tennessee, and they're certainly all in the Southeast, is I have them prepare cross country that's out West. So I send them out to, you know, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Oh, I love that city. I used to go skiing there all the time. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is you can earn your pilot certificate or you can earn your instrument rating in a relatively flat part of the Southeast but you're completely legal to go file IFR and depart Steamboat Springs in zero, zero conditions. Wow. So what I found, what I, so I let people, I always tell them a few days ahead of time what their cross country is because I want them to really pick it apart. Look at that departure procedure. Is your airplane going to be able to make that climb uh, to get out of there in zero, zero? And I think they, uh, I've run into too many candidates who just kind of easily dismiss, oh, sure, you know, my airplane can do that. And honestly, most airplanes say in the summer, like if you have, say, a Cessna 172 or a DA-40, it's not going to be able to make that obstacle departure procedure. So most of those, most of those cross, cross countries end up being a no-go but yet the candidate doesn't seem to realize that. And one of the things that they don't connect is the fact that the obstacle departure procedure will list a climb gradient. So that's yes, yes, per nautical that mile. Sense. Yeah. Instead of, uh, so, you know, you need to be able to uh, say achieve a 500 feet per nautical mile climb gradient. And they think, oh yeah, yeah, my airplane can do 500 feet per minute. <laughs> and so like, well, no, that's not, that's not a climb rate. That's a climb gradient. So they and also th- and also I know you're a stickler for weight and balance and center of gravity. In fact, you wrote a recent article in the proficiency section of the pilot magazine about your new bonanza and, and center of gravity. But what I, point I was going to get to is that you know in the summertime or a high density altitude situation when you're planning for a check ride something like this, you know the engine could be overheating. Also, this is another thing if you're an owner, an aircraft owner. <laughs> You know, we tend to we tend to baby our aircraft. We want those engines to last a long time. Now, be a renter, maybe might not have that same you know that, that same concept. But I mean, you don't want your engine to overheat and then cause yet another problem if you're under the hood or oh, ab- IFR, whatever. Absolutely. So then, yeah, you tend to lower the nose if you're an owner. You tend to lower the nose and climb out at a higher airspeed. But for example, if you climb out at 120 knots, which is tends to be what I convert to pretty soon after takeoff in the Bonanza. You know, you have to have a thousand foot per minute climb rate to achieve a 500 foot per nautical mile climb gradient. And then, you know, the, what, some of those departure procedures are asking for that climb gradient all the way up to say, I don't know, 13 or 14,000 feet. And most of us mortals, uh, you know, our airplanes can't do that on a hot day. It, there's, it's not going to get a thousand feet per minute at max gross up at 13,000 feet. So what I like to do is I feel like some of the uh, instruction that they've had maybe has been a, a bit deficient because they've concentrated on their cross countries, say here in the Southeast. I make them go out West so that at least in preparing for their check ride, they'll maybe have some aha moments. That's a really good idea though, because you brought up a great point, Catherine, which is, you know, once you get that advanced ticket, you can fly pretty much anywhere. You're good to go for the the Rockies or, you know, out in California where there's some pretty tall mountains. In fact, even on the East coast around North Carolina, not too far from you, there's some pretty, pretty tall mountains, you know, Mount Mitchell's like 6,000 feet ish. So uh, that is something to be thinking about. Is oh, there- absolutely. Yeah. Is there one? Okay, those are two really good takeaways as a DPE. Is there one more off the tip of your tongue that, you know, things that people could do that we could do better or something that bothers you? Okay, and this, (laughs) yes, is the answer. So, and this was also a recent article. Actually, this is an article that I did for Pilot that was wrapped inside a tribute to Bill Kirshner. And uh, so that was kind of a special article for me. But I had noticed that uh, really at the, especially at the private level, but honestly, also at higher level certificates and ratings, 
directional control on takeoff is a big issue. And I think a lot of pilots are being taught to land flat so that they can look over the nose on landing and keep directional control. But some of our operations, like soft field operations, require a nose-high attitude. And when the nose is high, I see them looking straight over, you know, out the windscreen at blue sky as we drift off the side of the runway. And I actually... Instead of of looking left or right out the windows. Exactly. And I Uh told the story of this, that made a huge impression on me when I was uh, a young instructor uh, or an early instructor. I saw Bill Kirshner watch some folks who, uh, an instructor and a student pilot, and uh, she was kind of having a tough time landing at Suwannee. And Suwannee is a challenging airport, uh, and we always have a crosswind. But the instructor, I think, was also having a hard time sharing that with her, how to help her have better directional control. And Bill walked out to the airplane and he immediately identified that, you know, she was sitting too low in the seat and the seat wouldn't raise up. So, you know, he got her a cushion and helped that. But then this was amazing. He had the instructor hold the tail down of the aircraft so that the ring was just a few inches above the ground to show her what the site picture should look like. And she said, well, I, I can't see the end of the runway. And he said, well, that, that's, a, that's true. And you shouldn't be able to. At that point, you need to divert your gaze over to the side of the aircraft. And he stood on the side of the aircraft and he says, this is where you should be looking when the nose is high. And she didn't know that. So I just, I was so bowled over because he showed me that you know, five minutes spent on the ground can solve so many problems in the air. So it just really hit me what a fabulous flight instructor he was. Well, that's a great takeaway, Catherine. I I think I might go to school on that myself. Basically, look left, look right, and see how that sight picture is if you're doing a short field or soft field ops, basically. That's a, a really good takeaway. Yeah, it is, yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground today on Hangar Talk. Is there anything else coming up uh, in your world that you want to share with our audience? And and also I want to remind them they could find you at aceaerobaticsschool.com. Gosh, you know, so in this time of COVID, I, I don't have anything really on the books. I'm a huge, to me, training is is really important. I love to continue my training. If I could do nothing but be a student the rest of my life, I'd be happy as a clam. In fact, I really am. I consider myself a perpetual student. Uh, so when times get a little better and training gets back to normal, I think I'm going to work on, I already have a, a glider, a commercial glider rating on my instructor certificate, but I think I'd like to work on my glider certificate or excuse me, my glider instructor add add, add gliding to my instructor certificate. Yeah. Well, I always heard that always heard that if you're a good glider pilot, good sailplane pilot, that you'll be a better powered pilot as well. You know, when every one of your landings is an engine out, how could that not be the best <laughs> training ever? <laughs> right. right. So that's a great point. That's a great point. Also, it's a good spot to end our, our chat, Catherine. Listen, I appreciate you coming on with us. We've been talking about this for a long time. And um, and you and I have crossed paths in other other situations. You know, we're both into a little bit of uh, aviation photography. I know your son has uh, got a little bit of a, a photography background. In fact, compliments to him, uh, to Pete, on that uh, photo that I saw recently of your Bonanza. But I want to say thanks again for spending so much time with us today. And we really appreciate it. I want folks to to uh, know that they could find you in Sewanee, Tennessee at aceaerobaticschool.com. Also in the AOPA Pilot Magazine. And one of these days, we'll get back to our in-person fly-ins and uh, workshops. And you were a very popular guest uh, last time we had a few of those as well. Thank you. I can't wait. Well, thanks again for joining us on Hangar Talk. Catherine Cavinero, thanks again for that wonderful pizza you made me that night when we first <laughs> met. And for the flight, the spin flights in uh, in your aircraft, the 152 Aerobat. 
Wilbur, and hopefully our paths will cross again in person in the near future. I have to say real quick, if you don't mind, uh, my kids loved having you over for pizza. And every time they see a photo of you photographing a, uh, an NFL game, they get so excited. They say, there's Mr. Toolis. So they just, they think you're such a rock star, but it has to do with your NFL photography. Well, I'm glad to be able to do that in my time off from AOPA. And you know what? I think you're a rock star teacher for aviation, a rock star CFI. And really seriously, you have so much to offer us. And we're glad to have someone like you in our background and in our back pocket, so to speak, as we carry that that pilot magazine around. And again, hello to the to the boys. And hopefully our paths will cross soon. I want to get a ride in that aerobatic bonanza. Absolutely. David, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Catherine. Talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. All right, David. So it's one thing to spin an airplane. It's another to spin an airplane looking through a camera. That's right, Ian. I guess uh, Catherine remembered that. I didn't. It all went by in a big blur. But I I got a couple of great frames out of that, and she was a good sport. And to this day, I count Catherine as one of my good friends. And, you know, we can learn so much from those type of of activities and learn more about our airplanes. And, yeah, I guess it was kind of cool to spin with a camera up to my face. I I don't know if I recommend it to our podcast listeners, but (laughs) I had a great time. Yeah, that's what POV cams are for. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, listen for us there. All right, see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangertalk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly.